Paul exhorts the Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But this is an unlikely assertion for a well-known religious figure like the Apostle Paul to make. Most people would expect Paul to shout something like, Try harder. Do better. Live a godly and good life. That's what God wants from you. But people who think such things have never read Paul's letter to the Galatians. They think the essence of religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is good behavior, not a gospel. But apart from our union with Christ through faith and a justifying righteousness imputed to us, works of law only condemn and make us even guiltier. And that's why Paul grounds the Christian life in the freedom won for us by Jesus Christ. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, the host of the Blessed Hope Podcast. This is the 10th episode in our series on the book of Galatians, and in this episode, we will tackle Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. In this episode, we take up the subject of Christian freedom in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So let's read the first part of our text, the first six verses, where Paul describes how the law demands obedience. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If anything is worth fighting for, it's freedom, especially Christian freedom. To defend Christian liberty in the face of the threat posed by the Judaizers, Paul issues a stern warning to the Galatians. Anyone who seeks to be justified by personal obedience to the law of Moses, through receiving circumcision, through the keeping of Jewish dietary laws, or in observing the Jewish religious calendar, will come under God's curse and fall from grace. Those who seek to be justified by observing works of the law according to Galatians 2.16, or what Paul calls elsewhere the basic principles of the world, the stoicheia, they place themselves in eternal danger. In Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12, Paul contrasts the Judaizing campaign of enslavement to the law with Christian liberty in Christ. And this is yet another important point in Paul's case against the Judaizers. In the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul offered several responses to Judaizing legalism, then causing all manner of disruption in the Galatian churches. In chapter 5, we move into what many identify as the practical section of Paul's Galatian letter, when the apostle takes up the important matter of Christian liberty. And while Paul changes focus a bit from those redemptive historical events which culminate in the death of Jesus and justification through faith, He does describe the Christian life in light of the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ. The apostle continues to set out sharp contrasts between opposing positions. Paul is quite fond of antithesis, or these great contrasts. He uses it as a rhetorical critique, and he uses it repeatedly. Following up his analogy between Hagar and Sarah in Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, When Paul turned the Jewish understanding of redemptive history on its head, in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12, he contrasts faith and works yet again, showing that they are diametrically opposed to each other when it comes to the matter of the justification of sinners. To seek to be justified by works of law 
or through observing dietary laws or feast days or circumcision, is to return to slavery to sin and bondage to these basic principles that Paul says characterize this present evil age. And this is a very serious misstep since Jesus Christ came for the purpose of setting us free from bondage to sin and the law. And that's why in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul begins with the uncompromising declaration, for freedom Christ has set us free. And this is where the Christian life begins, with our freedom from the guilt of sin and its enslaving power. If obeying the law of Moses as a means of justification is bondage, because doing so places one under the law's demand for perfect obedience, thereby making one subject to the law's curse upon any violation of its commands, then it's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, that Paul has in mind when he now speaks of Christian liberty or freedom. To be justified, which means we are given a right standing before God, is to be free from the curse of the law, because as Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. We're also freed from the yoke of slavery, to which law-keeping suggests us. Jesus came to set us free, not enslave us to the law, and all of the Protestant reformers agreed upon this point and spoke loudly of its importance. For the reformers to speak about justification was not enough. If Christian liberty was not the defining characteristic of the Christian life, then the doctrine of justification was not clearly understood. Judaizers were insisting that Gentile converts take upon themselves the yoke of the law of Moses as a means of demonstrating their full commitment to the religion of Israel from which came Jesus the Messiah. It is likely that Paul is throwing their own words back at them, calling obedience to law as a means of justification, a yoke of slavery when in the second half of verse 1, Paul commands the Galatians to stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The rabbinic description of the law as a yoke which the children of Abraham must take upon themselves may also be behind the meaning of our Lord's words of comfort in Matthew 11, verse 30. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The freedom of which Paul is speaking is the freedom belonging to the heir, the natural son, the child of the free woman, which is why Paul set out in the analogy of the preceding verses in which Paul took the proof texts that Judaizers were using regarding the Abraham story and showed how those texts actually support his doctrine of justification. What then is Christian freedom? Well, no less than John Calvin contends that Christian liberty is a vital matter since he sees it as an appendage to the doctrine of justification by faith. And it consists of three things. First, our consciences are clean before God because we're exonerated from the guilt of our sins. The blood of Jesus has washed that guilt away. Second, since we're not bound to the law as a means of justification, we are, for the first time, free to obey the law since it no longer condemns us. And third, since we're free from slavery and now free to obey the law, this means that we're also free from things indifferent the so-called adiaphora. As Calvin puts it, we are not bound before God by any religious obligation preventing us from sometimes using things indifferent and other times not using them indifferently. Essentially, then, Christian freedom is freedom from law as a means of justification. This entails freedom from the curse of the law and the yoke of slavery brought about by human attempts to earn God's favor through works of law. If we are free in Christ, then anyone who attempts to bind our consciences to the law as a means of justification, or worse, to the rules of men as a means or proof of our justification, are echoing the Judaizers. And in doing so, they risk coming under God's curse, which Paul pronounced upon the Judaizers in the opening verses of this letter. Christian freedom is grounded in the fact that our consciences are clean before God because Christ died to remove the guilt of our sin for all our infractions of God's law. Christian freedom also includes the new desire and indeed the ability to obey God's law as the fruit of gratitude, the so-called third use of the law, knowing that God accepts our flawed efforts at obedience as good works since we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And since we're free from law as a means of justification, we're now free to obey the law out of gratitude since we know this pleases God and that these efforts are the effect of our justification, not its basis or its ground. And in this, we see the genius of the Heidelberg Catechism with its structure, guilt, grace, and gratitude. In verse 1, Paul uses both an indicative mood, which is a statement of fact, for freedom Christ has set us free, and an imperative, which is a command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This indicative imperative framework is essential for understanding Paul's letters. Paul's commands for Christians to act in a certain manner always follows a prior declaration about who the Christian is in Jesus Christ. Christians are to act in a certain way, not to become Christians or to remain Christians, but because we are Christians. And so here, quoting one writer, the indicative states that Christ has set believers free with the gift of freedom that is proffered in the gospel. The imperative imposes upon them the task of preserving that freedom, or rather, of continuing in that freedom. It is a simple fact, the indicative, that we are free in Christ in all three senses we've just described. We are free from guilt, free from law as a means of justification, and free from all those who try and enslave our consciences to the basic principles, such as do not taste, do not touch, and do not handle, as Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. For freedom Christ has set us free. And our response to this from Paul's imperative is to defend that liberty against all efforts to return to slavery. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It is our Christian duty to love our weaker brothers and sisters and to voluntarily give up our freedom when necessary in their presence, just as Paul describes in Romans 14. But as Paul commands us here, it is also our duty as Christians to fight legalism and this Judaizing error with everything in us, rather than surrender our liberty to them. But the person who takes this to mean, goody, I can do what I want and sin with impunity since Jesus died for me, well, that person misses the point entirely. The importance of Christian liberty for Paul is seen in verse 2, where Paul uses the rather terse phrase, Look, I, Paul, say to you, something like, wait till your father gets home. It's emphatic, and it emphasizes Paul's authority as apostle to the Gentiles to issue commands to the churches. Paul makes three strong assertions in the following verses, that's verses 2 through 4. The first assertion is found in the second half of verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Paul is issuing a solemn warning to any Gentile Christians who may be sitting on the fence considering whether or not to submit to circumcision as they're being urged to do by the Judaizers. He's saying, don't do it. In effect, he is saying that if you listen to the Judaizers and are circumcised in order to become justified before God, well, then the death of Christ will be of no value to you. God's gracious act of becoming a curse for us upon the cross will not avail, and you will bear the curse of your infractions of the law personally. While hinted at in Galatians 2 verse 3, where Paul mentions that Titus refused to be circumcised for this very reason, this is the first actual mention in the epistle that circumcision is the real issue dividing the Galatian churches. Paul's warning also echoes the Old Testament warnings, like those in Jeremiah 9, verses 25 to 26, when Yahweh very pointedly warned Israel of the consequences of allowing circumcision to become a mere religious ritual, done apart from faith in God's promise. Yahweh says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. As Paul made plain in Galatians 3 verses 1 through 5, Christ's saving benefits are received through faith alone, and one continues in Christ through faith alone as well. 
we begin the Christian life in the Spirit, through the hearing of faith, and then continue on in Christ through faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. To attempt to be right before God through submission to ritual circumcision specifically, or through law-keeping generally, is to deny that we're under God's curse because of our disobedience, both personal and in Adam. It is also to deny that Christ's death alone is efficacious to remove the curse that we receive for our own violations of God's law. To argue that we're justified by faith and by works as the Judaizers were doing is to utterly depreciate the grace of God as demonstrated in the death of Jesus for sinners. As Charles Spurgeon so once aptly put it, he who has a weak view of sin has a weak view of the Savior. If you don't realize that the law brings a curse and that its demands must be fulfilled perfectly, well then you'll not see Christ's death and his imputed righteousness as the only God-given solution to the human predicament. Paul's second assertion about the importance of Christian liberty is found in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul is not condemning everyone who has already been circumcised, the Jewish converts to Christianity, but he's warning those who seek to be circumcised in order to be justified to think very carefully about the consequences of that act. Look, all Jewish men were already circumcised. Paul's not condemning them or Gentiles who may do so for other reasons, such as cleanliness. But he is warning Gentile converts that to be circumcised with the thought that doing so is meritorious before God, well, that's a very dangerous thing to do. Paul is perfectly clear. Either you were saved by the death of Christ or you're not saved at all. If anyone in the Galatian churches argues that they're saved by Christ plus something they do, in this case circumcision or keeping dietary laws and following the Jewish religious calendar, well, they're placing themselves back under the law, which in turn requires perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed. If we do not have Christ's perfect righteousness reckoned to our account, received through faith alone, we cannot possibly stand before God in the judgment. The bottom line is, if you want to be justified by your own efforts, then you must have absolutely no sin and a record of perfect obedience, or else you're going to be condemned. The third assertion about the importance of Christian liberty is found in verse 4, and it has two parts. For those of you who would be justified by law, two things will happen. First, you were severed from Christ, and second, you have fallen away from grace. This verse is often cited to contend that a true Christian believer can be severed from Christ and lose their salvation which is a very important and hotly debated point. Who is it that Paul has in view here as the one who can be cut off from Christ and fall from grace? Is this purely a hypothetical situation? Or if not, who is it that actually falls away? A number have argued that this is a reference to someone who is a Christian and who then does fall away a denial of what has come to be known as the perseverance of the saints. The Roman Catholic position is set forth in the Council of Trent is to assume that someone who is presently a Christian cannot fall away in the future destroys all incentive to perform good works. According to Rome, no one can know that they're presently saved unless God grant them this knowledge by special revelation. Rome contends that Certain mortal sins can actually sever us from Christ, and they go on to say that assurance of salvation is a false and sinful presumption. We're restored, Rome says, through penance, which is a sacrament according to Rome, called a second plank after the shipwreck of lost grace. So that means that we can be in the covenant, then out, and then back in again. But that's an idea foreign to the New Testament, because in Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 6, the biblical text, which is most often cited in this debate about perseverance, it speaks of apostasy, if committed, as total and final. Arminians and semi-Pelagians put the matter a bit differently, focusing not upon particular sins which can sever us from Christ, but 
upon the use of our free will to sever ourselves from Christ. Since, as they contend, we believe in Jesus by an act of the will, we can decide to cease believing in Jesus by an act of the will and subsequently sever ourselves from Christ and then fall away. According to a leading Arminian theologian, I'm quoting now, faith is conditional to the keeping, that is, our being kept in salvation by God, and as it involves a free personal agency, there is no doctrine of absolute perseverance. A righteous man may turn to sin and die therein. The branch may perish in the living vine. Judas, one of those given to the Son, was lost. And St. Paul, even with his full assurance of a state of salvation, apprehended the possibility of his own apostasy and strenuously wrought against it. And the author here cites 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, when Paul says, I might be disqualified from the prize. Is the person spoken of by Paul in Galatians 5, and who is severed from Christ a genuine Christian, who's committed a so-called mortal sin? Well, that's not a likely scenario given Paul's doctrine of justification. Or is it a Christian who, through the exercise of their free will, which is much more likely in the context, turning from Christ alone back to the elementary principles, who is therefore apostatized? To begin with, there is no doubt that Paul is very serious. This is not a thinly veiled warning, but a real possibility. There are apparently in the Galatian church who have fallen from grace, and there are others who are considering circumcision. But are these people who turn from Christ truly Christians? Well, Paul says no. These are not elect Christians, but are instead baptized members of the visible covenant community of the church who do not trust in Jesus Christ for justification, and who secretly trust in their own righteousness even though they profess faith in Christ alone with their mouths. Such people are members of the visible church, the covenant community, through baptism and the external profession of faith. But they never truly exercise saving faith. They do not persevere and they will eventually fall away. They are therefore not among the elect. Professing Christians can and do fall away from the church, the covenant community. But believing Christians numbered among God's elect cannot. Now this can be argued on three grounds. First, the historical context within the Galatian church. And second, the analogy of scripture, when we look at other Pauline texts. And third, Paul's treatment of national Israel and true Israel in Romans 9-11. to First, When we look at the Galatian context, Paul has already spoken of those who have deserted Christ and the gospel. He says back in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Well, it's apparent then that some have already fallen away, and Paul is writing to warn Christians not to follow those who did. But who heeds the warnings? Well, those whom God has called heed the warnings. That leads to a second point other Pauline passages which speak to the question of apostasy. Since it is God who effectually calls sinners to faith in Jesus, how can he uncall them, or let them uncall themselves, since the scripture speaks of God's gift and his calling as irrevocable in Romans 11.29? In verse 10 of this chapter, Paul speaks of his confidence in God, that his hearers will not accept a false gospel. He is confident that God will prevent his brothers from falling into such a fatal error. The warning is certainly real, and the question is, who heeds the warnings? Those called the elect, they heed the warning. We know from numerous texts that Paul did not believe that a Christian could lose present justification and salvation in a future judgment. In Romans 8, 28-30, Paul speaks of an unbreakable chain of God's acts. Those whom God has chosen, he calls. Those whom he calls, he also justifies. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. In fact, the rest of the 8th chapter of Romans is devoted to God's faithfulness, in that those God has justified, he will not condemn. What can separate us from his love? In Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul tells us that the one who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. And then in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul speaks of those whom God has predestined coming to faith in Christ 
and being sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment until the day of redemption. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul speaks of the believers already raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Well, how is it that God can see us already in the heavenlies when we might not persevere and make it there? How do we become unsealed with the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? As to the third point, in Romans 9-11, Paul distinguishes between national or ethnic Israel, which is the visible covenant people of God, and true Israel in Romans 9 verse 6. Neither Israel as a nation, nor the Jews as a people obtain the promises, but the elect within the nation of Israel did, as Paul tells us in Romans 11 verse 7. The nation of Israel had both elect and reprobate within its membership. The elect received the promise. The non-elect didn't. So it is with the Galatian church. The elect whom God has called will receive the promise that God gave to Abraham through faith. Those who are not numbered among the elect, those who do not really trust in Jesus Christ, though they profess to do so, they can and they do fall away from grace. The bottom line is that the warning Paul makes are real and must be heeded. Those who return to law-keeping will fall from grace. The elect will heed these warnings and reject that false teaching and will continue to believe in Jesus until the very end of their lives. Though there are indeed prodigals among us who do appear to fall away, only to return at some point yet future. The elect will persevere to the end and be saved. They do this because Jesus ensures that they persevere. And Paul places assurance and perseverance in the realm of Jesus Christ following through on what he began and never relenting in the process. The Roman notion that we can sin our way out of Christ is a grievous error because it denies that Christ's cross is sufficient to save sinners. And the Arminian semi-Pelagian idea is equally false. When it's argued that if we can use our free will to get ourselves in, well, then we can use it to get ourselves out. If that's true, then we reject the notion of total depravity, since it's God who got us in as an act of his pure grace. This also denies God's faithfulness in ensuring that those called to faith continue to believe. God doesn't let us get away, even if we try. And the parable of the Good Shepherd in Luke 15, verses 1-7, through does a great job of reminding us of that very thing, God's faithfulness. So let's read it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after that one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, Paul offers several additional points in Galatians 5.5 that support his rather stark contrast back in verses 2-4. through For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul broaches the eschatological or future hope of righteousness when he states that through the Spirit, by faith, we await the hope of righteousness, and that raises the question as to whether or not justification is present or in some sense, a strictly future event. The phrase translated the hope of righteousness refers to the realization of all the blessings promised by God to those presently justified. By faith, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, those who presently believe the promise will receive all that is promised to the children of Abraham, life and salvation and glory. Obedience to the law can never bring that about. Paul's emphasis is not solely upon a righteousness which we will receive but don't yet have. And throughout Galatians, Paul has already spoken of a justification that is something Christians already possess. Back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Those justified do possess the present hope that they will be delivered from God's future judgment as well as receive all those good things promised to them. 
In Galatians 5, the text we've been considering, Paul probably has the comments he made in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9 in mind when he speaks of this hope being through the Spirit, which is perhaps a contrast with hope coming through the flesh. Since we receive it through faith alone, in contrast to good works, he's telling us by implication that the hope of righteousness is markedly different from those who can only hope in righteousness of circumcision and ceremony, which in effect leaves them with no hope. They trust in the flesh and in the works of the law. They can only look forward to the punishment that they're earning for themselves, the curse under the law. How tragic is that? Second, in verse 6, Paul explains why it's through the Spirit by faith that the justified have such hope when he writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision and or obedience to the law have no place in our justification, but Paul expands the reference to include uncircumcision as well. Circumcision does not justify, and the lack of circumcision provides no advantage to the Gentile. What matters is faith, faith which links us to Christ, whose death removes the curse since he bore it for us in his own body, and whose active obedience is imputed to us through that same faith. What counts, then, is faith working through love, which is a hotly disputed phrase, and it's important for us to ask and answer. What does Paul mean by this? True faith that does justify reveals itself in love for others. Are we justified by our love for others? No. Once we're justified by trusting in God's promises, we will truly begin to love our neighbor. Rome's notion that faith is manifest in a perfect love that leads to justification, that is, if we're justified, we have loved our neighbor sufficiently, well, that's flat out incorrect. Faith is not equated with love, but that faith that looks to Christ will be evident in love for others. Paul is not to be understood in a synergistic sense, as one writer tells us, as though faith through its expression cooperates in producing salvation. Rather, Paul is saying that the faith that justifies is of such a nature that it expresses itself through the love of neighbor. The same act of faith that justifies also marks the beginning of the process of sanctification. And when we are justified through faith alone, we also receive the Holy Spirit who begins to transform us, thereby enabling us to truly love others. The Roman Church argues that this passage refutes sola fide, since Paul supposedly teaches that faith is actually a kind of working in love. The Roman error amounts to believing that our justification depends upon an inner transformation seen in faith working in and through love. But instead, the faith which justifies and does unite us to Christ will also issue forth in good works. In other words, a faith which justifies and produces love. Now, in saying this, we must be very clear that Paul is not talking about a faith that produces enough love and works of charity to earn justification. Ironically, the position of Tridentine Roman Catholicism is virtually identical to that of the Judaizers who were then terrorizing the consciences of the Galatian churches. So, contrary to the advocates of the new perspective, both Luther and Calvin were absolutely justified, pun intended, in making that connection. At the Council of Trent, sadly, the Roman Church effectively anathematized Paul's gospel, and we believe from that point on ceased to be a true and visible church. If Paul's doctrine of the Christian life is the application of his doctrine to particular situations in daily life, then the implications of Christian liberty are for Christians quite obvious. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so when anybody spies on our liberty, telling us that the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, is an invention of Luther and Calvin, well, then we must stand firmly against them by rebuking them from the scriptures and reminding them of Paul's words in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It is for freedom, not slavery to popes or cardinals or canon law that Christ set us free. Stand firm and never again become subject to the Roman yoke of slavery. When so-called evangelical brothers and sisters spy on our liberty and tell us that since we can fall away from Christ and be lost, or that we get in by grace but stay in through good works, that is, there's a present justification by faith and a future justification by final works, or that we had better prove our allegiance to God and seek the assurance of our salvation through our good works, instead we reply with Paul, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ became a curse for us, so that even though we were prisoner to sins, we're now set free. Jesus' death is sufficient for me, and my only hope of heaven is to be found not in the work of my hands, but in his work, his cross, his sinless life. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand up to all who seek to enslave us. Don't give in to those teachings of those things, even for a minute. And so if Paul asks, why did Christ die? We know what his answer is going to be, for freedom. The Son of Man set you free, you will be free indeed. And that's why we stand firm and never again take upon ourselves the yoke of slavery. In the first six verses of Galatians 5, the stress Paul places upon Christian liberty means that for him, the Christian life begins by understanding just what it means to be free in Christ. It means freedom not to do as we want, but freedom to obey the commandments of God, because that is what free men and women do. If our view of justification does not lead to Christian liberty, well then, we haven't understood justification sola fide properly. In the second half of this epistle, yet again, Paul challenges the Galatians not to listen to those who would lead them astray, using a rather graphic expression, a sign of Paul's righteous anger at those who deceptively entered the Galatian churches, leading his brothers and sisters astray. Well, if you are enjoying this series on the book of Galatians, please tell a friend about the Blessed Hope podcast and do your best to encourage them to listen. Now, as we get closer to the end of the series, I am still wrestling with figuring out how and if to utilize the various podcasting options that are available. I am open to suggestions, so send them my way through the Contact Me section of my blog. That's the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com, kimriddlebarger, lowercase, all one word, kimriddlebarger.com. Show notes for this and other episodes of the Blessed Hope Podcast can be found on my blog under the Blessed Hope Podcast tab. Again, the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com. The notes provide background information that is specific to each episode of the podcast. While you're poking around on the blog, you can listen to years of sermons from Christ Reformed Church, uh, audio lectures on a variety of subjects, information about my books is there, as well as a number of publications that are unique to the blog, stuff I've written over the years that i posted there, and I'm always adding new stuff. In fact, I'm almost done moving from the old version of the Riddle blog to the new one, and I'll give you a heads up as to when the old blog is going to go away and enter cyberspace eternity. Meanwhile, check out the new blog, the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com. You can also leave me feedback at the Riddle blog in the Contact Me section. Feedback is very helpful to me because the podcast is relatively new. We're only 10 episodes along. Now, any questions you might have may indeed appear in future podcasts, and there are several queued up and ready to go, but I really do need a few more. So if you've got any good questions, send them my way. And I still encourage you to read through the book of Galatians in its entirety at least once. Take the time, find a quiet spot, pick up your Bible, read Galatians through one time. If you have an audio Bible of any sort, listen to Galatians being read in its entirety I think you'll find it really, really helpful. I do that every now and again, and I I think it's really useful. So I encourage you to do that as well. With all of that out of the way, now it's back to the Blessed Hope. 
As we move into a subsection here of Paul's discussion of Christian freedom, uh, we're looking at warnings for those who oppose Paul's gospel in verses 7 to 12. So let's read the text and press ahead. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven levels the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In verse 7, Paul warns the Galatians, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, calling his readers back to the mindset they had when he first preached the gospel to them, Paul recounts how you were running well until someone cut in on them. Literally, someone blocked the way. DSV translates that as hindered. This kept the Galatians from obeying the truth. Now, you recall that previously in Galatians 2, Paul spoke of the gospel as the truth. And here he very likely means that by hindering the Galatians, the Judaizers attempted to prevent people from believing the gospel and obeying the central message of that gospel, that we trust in Jesus Christ alone in order to be justified since the merits of Christ, including his death for our sins and his perfect obedience, are received through faith alone and not through works. Paul tells him in verse 8, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now the source of this deception isn't Paul, nor does their befuddlement come from God who called them to faith in Christ. The source of the hindrance has to be found somewhere else. Now, in the most obvious sense, this deception comes directly from the Judaizers who were severed from Christ and have fallen from grace. Elsewhere, Paul states that there are more sinister origins to this deceptive teaching. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through the first part of chapter 5, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Reformation piety, the three great enemies facing the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world isn't the planet, but it's rather the spirit of the age. And that's understood to be those material enticements that draw us away from Christ and his kingdom. Fame and fortune, or as Francis Schaeffer used to call it, personal peace and affluency. Paul identifies this persuasion with the present evil age which is passing away and from which Christ came to rescue us, as he, Paul tells us in Galatians 1 verse 4. Following the way of the world would be akin to having no interest in thinking like a Christian about the issues of daily life and intellectually identifying with the world in opposition to Christianity. The religions of the world would tell us something like, you know, good people go to heaven, bad people are punished or hell or go through uh, another cycle of life and they come back as a, a stink bug or something. And the determining factor as to where one spends eternity lies not in the grace and the will of God, but in the will and effort and goodness of the sinner. Yet this is the very thing Paul identifies as the basic principles of the world and those basic principles stand in opposition to the gospel revealed to him by Jesus. The flesh is the sinful nature that wages a constant and determined guerrilla war against us from within, and so the flesh, or our sinful orientation, produces those sinful and self-centered acts that condemn us when we are measured by the standard of God's law that does indeed demand perfect obedience. Paul teaches us that the flesh is progressively subdued by the Holy Spirit through the means of grace, that is, to the preached word and the sacraments, over the course of our lives. We will wage war against the sinful nature until we die or Christ comes back, whichever comes first. The third foe of the Christian, the devil, is primarily concerned with disrupting the spread of the gospel and distorting the truth whenever possible. It is our Lord who describes Satan as the father of lies. The truth isn't in him, and deceit and obfuscation of the truth is really his native language, as John tells us in the 8th chapter of his gospel, verses 44 to 45. 
It's a sign, I think, of how self-important we are that many act like the devil's primary goal is to disrupt their every move. In many circles, anything that goes wrong is just blamed on Satan. Well, this is what happens when you neglect the doctrine of God's providence. You know, it's the devil who caused my internet connection to crash, or it's the devil who gave me a flat tire so I had to be late to church. Our age is every bit as superstitious as was the first century world of Galatia. And that's why Paul repeatedly warns us of the evils of false doctrine. Satan could care less about the condition of your smartphone, but he hates the gospel of free grace and of Christian liberty. In verse 9, Paul quotes a popular proverb. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, a very small amount of something as potent as yeast can spread throughout a large mass quite quickly with dramatic consequences. The false teachings of the Judaizers spread throughout the whole Galatian congregation in very short order. The term leaven was very familiar to first century folk who virtually existed on baked bread. No gluten-free folks there. They're all glutenaholics. I am too, so I can sympathize with them. Leaven has a varied use in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, verse 33, and in Luke 13, verse 21, our Lord used the term leaven in reference to the Christian church, the gospel, and the parable of the leaven. But Paul may have our Lord's words as recorded in Luke 12, 1 in mind, where Jesus spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees as their hypocrisy, which spread everywhere. And then in Matthew 16, verses 5 to 12, Jesus also speaks of the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees as leaven, And that probably is what's in the background here when Paul speaks of the teaching of the Judaizers as leaven spreading throughout the Galatian churches. In the case of his immediate hearers, Paul remains confident that they'll not follow the Judaizers to the point of being severed from Christ and falling from grace. Paul's confidence is the fact that God is faithful and he will preserve all those in Christ, ensuring that they will believe to the end and be saved. In verse 10, he tells the Galatians, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That is, they will take no other view than the fact that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and that the Christians among them, those who are truly God's people, will indeed stand firm just as Paul has exhorted them. It's important to recall that the same apostle who had pointed out that saving faith will inevitably work in love not to earn justification, but as the fruit of a prior verdict of justification, that same apostle also believed that love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres, as he put it in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Paul's confidence is in Christ. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He gives his sheep eternal life, and he does not allow a single one to be snatched from his hand, as John tells us in the 10th chapter, all 31 verses of the great shepherd passage in John's gospel. Paul's warnings to the Galatians are real, but the apostles' confidence is in God's gracious work in sustaining faith in those who currently trust the Savior. In the latter part of verse 10, Paul seems to imply that the Judaizers were led by an unnamed individual. And the one who's troubling you, he says, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's clear. The one doing this will receive God's judgment. And the phrase, whoever he is, doesn't necessarily mean that this person's identity is unknown to Paul, but that whoever is teaching such things is going to receive judgment despite a possible high standing in the church. Paul expresses a similar sentiment in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 15, where he warns us that there are false apostles and deceitful workers within the church. People, he says, who masquerade as angels of light. Paul warns of the inevitable fact that heretics are going to come. And so we must be constantly on our guard for them because they're not going to arrive in our midst and say, Hi, I'm a heretic. They're deceptive. They're sneaky. False teachers are going to get what their actions deserve, says Paul. No matter how deceptive they are, God knows those who are his, and he protects them through the light of his word, which exposes error. In verse 11, Paul is probably responding to charges being made against him by this unnamed accuser. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? 
In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Well, despite his anger, Paul still refers to his readers as brothers. As is his custom, Paul begins his argument with an indicative, a statement of fact that forcefully distinguishes genuine believers from the Judaizers and those influenced by them. The reason why God had called the Galatian Christians to faith in Jesus Christ in the first place was to set them free from bondage to sin and from the yoke of the law. Christ died for the purpose of liberating his people from basic principles. In his death, Jesus became a curse for us, and in doing so, he takes away the guilt of our sins. And though Paul would not permit Titus to be circumcised because the gospel was at stake in Galatia, Paul didn't condemn Jews who were circumcised. And apparently the individual attacking Paul in Galatia was accusing Paul of duplicity, that Paul preached the importance of circumcision to Jews, but did not preach that to Gentiles. And so while Paul was willing to grant circumcision to the Jews, thereby allowing him to concentrate on the message of the cross, Paul could ask if he was preaching two different Gospels, and so taking the easy road, if that were true, the obvious question is, then why am I still being persecuted if I'm telling everybody what they want to hear? Well, Paul was persecuted because the cross of Jesus Christ was an offense to the self-righteous and to those Judaizers seeking to abolish the gospel of free grace in sola fide. Paul preached the cross of Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile. And while allowing Jews to continue with the custom of circumcision, Paul never preached that the Jews were justified one way and Gentiles another. If he'd been preaching circumcision, why on earth is he being attacked so viciously in Galatia? Now, ear ticklers are always going to tell their audiences what they want to hear so as to avoid persecution like that directed at Paul. The cross is as offensive to Judaizers as it is to their hearers. Preachers who preach a false gospel of works righteousness, or what the Reformers decried as priestcraft and popery, or our contemporaries who tell us that we must preach to the current interests of our congregations, well, they may attract large crowds and numerous disciples, but they can only do this if they abolish the offense of the cross. The truth is that the cross is offensive to the self-righteous and to any and all who seek to stand before God and boast of their good works. Since Paul had been preaching the cross through his public placarding of Christ crucified, it's only natural that opposition directed toward him would arise. The fact that the Judaizers were attacking his character refuted the argument that Paul was still preaching circumcision. And in Galatians 5.12, Paul again demonstrates his indignation at the false teachers falsely accusing him of hypocrisy. And boy, does he mince no words with them. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Those are strong words, and how do we respond? First, this verse is a clear declaration that the inspiration of Scripture does not entail any form of mechanical dictation, but instead ought to be seen as a divine human confluence. While the inspiration of Scripture extends to the very words of Scripture, and not just to the thoughts or ideas in Scripture, Nevertheless, Paul's anger and his personality comes through in his letter to the Galatians. The God-breathed scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, does not negate its equally human attributes any more than Jesus having a divine nature doesn't negate the fact that he's also truly human. Paul's anger is clearly evident, even when he writes the epistle to the Galatians under divine inspiration. A second thing we need to say is there is a loud Old Testament echo here that's easy for us Gentiles who don't know the Old Testament to miss. In Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, Moses wrote, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now the historical background to Paul's challenge here is pretty important. During the time of Moses, there was a widespread Near Eastern practice of eunuchs serving as priests leading worship of the various pagan deities. Jumping ahead to first century Galatia, in the case of those who circumcised themselves in order to be justified, Paul's warning is pretty clear. If you start with circumcision, then go the whole way and emasculate yourself. According to Moses, if you do that, and if that happens to you, 
you are thereby barred from the assembly of God's people. Paul is reminding the Galatians that they seek to return to law as a means of justification. They should take the time to read what the law actually says. If they circumcise people in order to be justified, they come under God's curse and cannot enter into the assembly of God's people, which is Christ's church. And while important and useful if seen as a sign and seal of covenant membership, circumcision can be positively dangerous when someone was circumcised in an attempt to earn righteousness, and ironically, they are severed from Christ, undergoing the very covenant curse demonstrated in the sign of circumcision, which is to be cut off. Well, as we wrap up, in Galatians 5.1, Paul made an emphatic assertion that the purpose of the death of Christ was in part to set believers free from the elementary principles of the world. Christ's merits provide us with what we need to be found right before God or justified. To add the merit of human works, the basic principles of the world, to the merit earned for us by Christ is an affront to God. Our liberty in Christ is the basis for the Christian life because as Christians, we have clean consciences before God because the guilt of our sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ. And since we are now in Christ, we are not bound by the law as a means of earning a right standing with God. And once justified, we are free to obey the law of God since we're no longer a slave to sin. Our freedom in Christ then is the basis for living the Christian life. This view of Christian liberty also ensures that we're no longer bound by things indifferent, those things which are not expressly prohibited in Holy Scripture, summed up in the prohibitions that Paul gives elsewhere, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. All those who have a right standing before God through faith in Christ are free from all those elemental things that once enslaved us. And if we're not clear about this, we're not going to be clear about how to live the Christian life. Given the fact that Christ died to set Christians free from the very things to which the Judaizers were trying to re-enslave them, Paul exhorts the Galatians, both at the beginning and the end of the section, to stand firm against these false teachers and not allow themselves to bear again the yoke of slavery, which is a rabbinic phrase for obedience to the law of Moses. If anyone does return to law-keeping as a means of earning favor with God, Paul says, they will fall from grace and be severed from Christ. Now, this is no intramural debate. Paul tells us that justification produces freedom in Christ, yet the false gospel proclaimed by the Judaizers and legalists everywhere brings about slavery and bondage to the very things for which Christ died to free us. If we don't resist them, we'll end up re-enslaved back to basic principles for which Christ has died. But Paul is no libertine, as the Judaizers were falsely contending. And you can just hear them telling the Galatians in Paul's absence. If Paul teaches that we're justified by faith alone and not by works, what place does that leave for your good works? If people really believe Paul, well then they'll live lives characterized by sin and self-indulgence, not good works. You can just imagine the Judaizers pointing out to everyone who will listen, those immature individuals in Galatia who do use the gospel as an excuse to sin, and they'll say that is the proof that Paul's gospel is dangerous. But Paul doesn't take the bait. Instead, he preaches louder and longer the gospel of free grace, justification by faith alone, and preaches Christian liberty louder and longer than ever. This epistle is the proof. It is indeed for freedom. The problem is not that the gospel leads to license, but that those who live in such a fashion do not understand, or in certain cases, really don't believe the gospel. False doctrine is the faith that justifies is also a faith that works in love, not so that we can be justified, but because we already are justified. One who trusts in the merits of Christ is set free to strive to obey the law of God. But the religion of the Judaizers, on the other hand, is a religion of fear and doubt and slavery to the law of God. Martin Luther sums up the matter quite well. 
From this freedom follows another in which Christ has freed us from the law, sin, and death, the power of the devil, hell, and more. Just as God's wrath can no longer distress us, for Christ has delivered us from it, so also the law, sin, and the like cannot accuse us and condemn us. Although the law may accuse us and sin perturbs us, they cannot plunge us into desperation, for faith, which overcomes the world, appears immediately and says, These things no longer belong to me, for Christ has freed and delivered me from the wall. Death, the most powerful and fearful foe in all the world, has been defeated and cast out from the conscience by the Spirit's freedom. Thus the majesty of this Christian liberty needs to be held in high esteem and carefully considered. Thanks so much for listening to the Blessed Hope Podcast, and until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.